This morning, I will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. It's available for you for comparison in your pew Bibles or on the screen in the English Standard Version. A reading from the book of Moses, Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his personal possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not make you his beloved nor choose you because you were greater in number than any of the peoples, since you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his faithfulness to a thousand generations for those who love him and keep his commandments. A reading from the book of Psalms, chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Certainly, goodness and faithfulness will follow me all the days of my life. And my dwelling will be in the house of the Lord forever. A reading from the Acts of the Apostles, verses one, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Now Saul approved of putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and mourned loudly for him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and he would drag away men and women and put them in prison. This is the word of the Lord. So let's pray as we begin. Uh, Father in heaven, you are seated on the mercy seat. Your throne streams forth grace. You do that in practical ways in, in preaching, in the sacraments, in discipleship, in creation. Lord, you are the Father of love and grace, and we pray that we'd hear your word here this morning. Send your Holy Spirit to make Jesus Lord over us out of love. Amen. Amen. And so one of the reasons why I uh, picked these, or limited it to these three verses, I could have we could have skipped over these three really quick verses about, about Saul ravaging the church and the persecution that arose after Stephen was, was stoned to death and, and, and how that fits in, and that would have been all great. But um, I want to remind us that as we go through the book of Acts, like, so one second. So today we're going to look at God's extravagant ex- exhibitions of grace. And I want to make it clear that when, and as we look through patterns in scriptures and as we look through patterns especially in the book of Acts, of how when Jesus said, I will build my church, we're supposed to be looking for patterns of how is he going to build his church. He says that in Matthew 16, 18. 
And in corresponding to the Great Commission, in the very first chapter of Acts 1.8, Jesus himself says he commands the disciples to wait in Jerusalem because they're going to receive power from on high, and then they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in all of Samaria, until the ends of the world. And so when Jesus says, I will build my church, that directly corresponds to being witnesses uh, and having power from heaven to be witnesses to Christ in, in all the earth. And so, so we're supposed to be looking for patterns in Scripture. And what we want to make sure is that when we're looking for patterns, we're not inserting our own patterns. We're not looking for, it's commonly what we call eisegesis as a way of reading the Scripture and we're inputting our own ideas into it. But in juxtaposition to that, exegesis is we're reading Scripture and finding what are the major ideas and patterns and drawing them out of Scripture. We don't want to read our ideas into Scripture. And so an easy way to think about that is, well, let's think about how most churches, how we fall into this trap sometimes, and, and unless you're really thinking about it and studying it and implementing things, how do we do discipleship? Well, we have different things, and we have different programs and, and all this, and that's not all necessarily bad, but when Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, your pattern for discipleship was Jesus making disciples over the course of the Gospels uh, that he had done over the last three years. And so you can't take your ideas and implement them into Scripture. When Jesus says make disciples, you should first look to see how Jesus made disciples. That would be the normal way of, of finding the pattern. And so in the book of Acts, the fact that Jesus said that he was going to build his, his church and that he's going to, that the people, the disciples are going to be witnesses of Christ, the next 28 chapters as a historic evidence towards that is a pattern in itself. That's what we should be looking for. And so it's interesting that when there's only two places that Jesus says and uses the word ecclesia or church in the Gospels. And that's in, in Matthew 16 and, uh, and Matthew 18. And one of them is talking about building his church and the next one uh, in Matthew 18 is about church discipline and, and governments of the church. And so but the flip side of the epistles and the rest of the New Testament, Jesus mostly talks about his kingdom and only mentions the church twice. But the, throughout the epistles and the rest of the New Testament, the kingdom is, mu- is mentioned far less than the church. I think the kingdom is mentioned about, kingdom of God is mentioned about 17 times. I don't remember the exact number. And the church uh, is mentioned in corresponding ways uh, well over like 40 to 60 times in the rest of the New Testament. So it wasn't that the disciples got it wrong. It wasn't that the disciples thought that Jesus preached the kingdom, but we're going to preach about the church. The, the kingdom is coming through the church. It's through coming, making disciples. And Jesus uh, spoke about that very clearly, and the apostles and the early disciples knew that. And so Hebrews 8.5 warns us, that, and, and tells us to look for patterns. Hebrews 8, 5, look at it on your own time. Uh, actually, let's, this is your own time. Let's look at it right now. I didn't put it in my notes, so let's turn to Hebrews 8, 5. Speaking of the high priest, the, the Levites, the tabernacle, the temple, the sacrifices... The writer of Hebrews says, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. 
For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. And so that pattern, the, the writer says, was a shadow, and the substance is Christ. And so we are supposed to be looking for patterns in, in Scripture. And so a, a brief one, like Jesus is the true Israel. You can see Hosea 11.1, 1, and you can see how that's quoted in Matthew 2.15, that Jesus is the true Israel. But the church is also called the true Israel in Romans 2.9 and, and Romans 9, 6 through 8. And then Jesus is the light, but we're also the light. And, and, and so Jesus is the ultimate pattern that we're looking at. Jesus Christ is heaven come to earth. Jesus is, is the pattern. And so when Luke puts this little blurb about Saul ravaging the church, it's not just giving social commentary that, that he was a bad man, he approved of it, and he did some, he did some bad things. Uh, that's not what, what God's up to. He wants us to have the evidence and point us towards how he's going to pour forth grace, how he's going to... Saul wouldn't be a character if he doesn't get changed. And so when Luke puts this little blurb in here and, and acts about Saul ravaging the church, linguistically he's preparing us for something else greater that's about to happen. And so we know that Saul gets converted to Paul. Uh, we find later in the book of Acts that Saul's name was changed to Paul. I think Paul was actually his new name at conversion. But that's to be debated. That's not clear in the scriptures. But we know what happens later in the book of Acts on the road to Damascus. But here in that fact that he's sitting here and not just approving of Stephen stoning, he's sitting as the kind of head guy over and approving Stephen's death. And when he's ravaging the church door to door, he's going and purposely persecuting, killing, and arresting Christians. Remember, they were in Jerusalem and how Roman colonies had set up in their government is, is the local government still had a lot of authority. They were just overseen by the Roman government and as kind of to do their bidding. And so that's why Jesus was arrested by the temple. And you're like, that'd be like the elders of the church going out and uh, finding somebody. Uh, we often have people walk their dogs in front of our church and several times they let their dogs pee and and stuff on the cross in front. It'd be like our elders coming out and arresting those people. And so that's what it was like in, in Jerusalem. But they, had, but they actually had authority to do it. So when Jesus was arrested by the temple guards, those, were, those weren't Roman people that had initially arrested Jesus. Those were uh, positioned, positioned by, the, by the temple. And so Saul is sitting not just as a guy who's vindictive and is against the Christians. He has a position of some authority to sit over Stephen stoning and approve of it and say, yeah, let's, we're going to stone this guy. I approve of it. I'll hold your coats. You guys throw the rocks. And so when he's going door to door, you know, this is a little plug. We're going to be starting a church membership class here, hopefully late September, early October is when we'll actually get the class going of where we have an official membership and uh, of who's a member and, and, and what that means. But, you know, Saul wasn't going door to door in Jerusalem and asking people if you're a Christian. He probably had the, the church roles, the church membership. He probably had persecuted somebody and got their uh, information about who was in the church and went to those doors uh, purposely to, to either arrest them, kill them, persecute them in some way. And so 
the pattern in, in Scripture is that we're going to see this bad news when we see these characters that arise, and especially when it's, it's saying something like this about Saul, it's God's preparing you that he is about to pour forth a lot of grace. He is about to show some extravagant power and extravagant mercy. And so uh, there's no limit, and there's no limit to who God is giving grace to. And so if you were to never read the Bible and you were reading it for the first time and just followed the Gospels as like a narrative, you'd be like, oh, Jesus calls these humble fishermen and he calls these, these tax collectors were pretty bad. They were pretty wicked people. The tax man, I don't, does anybody like the tax man? I don't think so. Uh, and Jesus is calling these early disciples to be apostles who were just generally not that well off in society or socially uh, outcast or to some degree, but you know, and we don't get anybody that's and we got the religious Pharisees that some of the Pharisees joined uh, Christ as disciples, and you don't see anybody, and you got prostitutes and uh, and other people, and when you get to Saul, you're like, we've never seen a conversion of a murderer on this level yet, and so there's what the scriptures are doing, what God doing, is doing through his word, he's showing us and telling us that there's not going to be any limits to the mercy and grace that he pours out. We don't, put, we don't see Saul put in here and then say he was killing Christians and, and that's a bad man and he's going to get his, his just rewards. And in Acts, we're seeing how that is, is poured forth, how his mercy is poured forth. And so... Uh, the book of Acts was written around 62 to maybe 63, maybe as late as 64 AD. Saul was, or Paul was uh, killed by Nero in 64 AD, and it was certainly written before that. And so by the time Acts was actually distributed, everybody knew who Saul Paul was, and everybody had known his past. And he had, if you look in, after his conversion in chapter um, Chapter 9, 10, when he's starting to flee from Damascus and has to be, and if you kind of put the pieces together of all of Paul's testimony, when he's letting, being let down through the window in a basket, he's uh, later, I think it's in Second Corinthians, he wasn't just fleeing the persecution of the Jews in that city, he was fleeing the persecution of the Romans as well. And so in... And so by the time that that book of Acts was written, most of the notoriety and the, and the fame and the testimony of Paul had already gone forth. He had already, all the churches that were planted by that point were mostly started by him or by his team. And so, um, so in our text, it notes that the, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. And so the apostles didn't really start leaving until uh, the, almost you get to 70 AD and uh, they knew that the Jerusalem was going to be the hub of, of the church, and eventually Antioch gets made the central church, but, but Saul's fame had gone before him. And so what we often forget is that God had ordained Saul to persecute the Christians. He had ordained and lined up and put in place and prepared Saul for the persecution of Christians. It didn't catch God by surprise. It didn't uh, throw him off. He's not. Oh no, this is a Saul guy. Well, this might be this might be a good guy to convert, right? When we looked at our scriptures in Deuteronomy seven, where God was talking to the Israelites that 
I didn't choose you because you guys were more in number. I didn't choose you because you guys had more resources or had more money. I didn't choose Israel because they had more wisdom. He actually just says because you guys were the least of the people because you were the most to be pitied. And it's God who ordained all the way back in Genesis to, and telling Abraham that you guys are going to go into Egypt and you're going to be enslaved for 400 years. And you're going to be enslaved for 400 years so that I can show my power and mercy against Egypt. And so let's not forget that God had ordained uh, Saul's entire testimony. And so he was leading the persecution. And, and what we want to see in here is when God chooses somebody, he does this because he wants to show his extravagant mercy. He wants to show how awesome his power is. He wants to put on display his mercy, his grace, his love, and what it does to people. And so some people would, this isn't uh, most commentators or throughout history or church history. A lot of people have attributed Saul Paul to being the great apostle. There's nowhere in scripture that he is referred to as a, a greater or lesser apostle, except for Paul says that about himself in, in, one, in the second Corinthians. Um, there's an accusation against Paul by the Corinthians that he was a lesser apostle. And, but through most of church history, they have referred to Paul as a great apostle or the great apostle, not just because of his wonderful conversion, but because he ended up writing 13 books of the New Testament, that he was the, the major church planter in the first century. And so that in itself is a, is a, is a show of God's pattern and extravagant grace is Peter doesn't write that many New Testament books. He was the head of the church. He was the rock. He was the one that Jesus Christ himself ordains to be the central figure of the church. And then God says, I'm going to take the murderer, I'm going to take the guy who persecuted the Christians to plant most of the churches and write most of the New Testament scriptures. So what, what we want to see is that God is continually in the business of making his enemies into his friends. Romans 5 makes that clear. We often, um, let's turn to Romans 5. We often like to quote the, where it talks about us being sinners. Romans 5, verse 6, starting in 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we're all like, amen, I'm a sinner. And we kind of have a low view of what that means. But if we keep going, in verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And so God is continually in the business of taking his enemies and turning them into his friends. If you were ever outside of Christ, which everybody was, then you were an enemy of God. You, weren't, you didn't need just a little churching up. And so... Um, when, uh, in our Deuteronomy reading, when it points out that Israel was a special treasure, it wasn't because they were so great and they had a lot to offer. And that translates, neither did you. Nobody here had a lot to offer to God. 
Nobody here actually had anything to offer to God. When you look at Israel, they were small, and you start to see the extravagance of God's grace of when they're led out of Egypt, what's the first thing they do? We start complaining. Well, God saved us from Egypt, and he showed these ten plagues, and now we're in this desert. Thanks, God. What are we going to do now? And uh, I like God's response in the manna and especially the quail because they start complaining about food, and God's a little sarcastic sometimes, and he gives them quail up to their eyeballs uh, so much. You're going to complain about not having food? I'll give you food. Um, But Israel was small. There was nothing that they could have attributed to having anything to give to God. They were complainers, grumblers, idolaters. They reveled against God's authority. They were sexually immoral. And so in God's eternal, infinite wisdom, when he talks about choosing Israel for a bride, he's choosing a harlot. He's choosing people who commit adultery against him. He's choosing people who he knows have nothing and is probably, if anything, going to make the situation worse. And so... So oftentimes in the church, we, especially we've come out of like a pagan lifestyle um, and, and, and the Lord starts sanctifying us and we receive God's grace and mercy and we start you know, kind of down the path of, of godliness by his mercy. Oftentimes what happens in, in the church and happens in our church, happens as part of human nature, is that we start looking down on other people because they're not as far down the path of grace and sanctification as we are. And we look at stuff like, well, I was a drunkard, and I was sexually immoral, and this guy's been coming to church for three weeks, and why can't he get his act together? Well, it, it took God 10 years. Uh, maybe it took God 10 years to get your act together because you were slow or something. But we oftentimes fall into the pitfall, pitfalls as a church of looking down on other believers and other Christians who God is showing grace to and are a central complaint is that God's not showing them grace fast enough. God's not, I'm, I'm up here. God saved me. God sanctified me. And why can't, why can't you get sanctified? Right? We often look down on other believers in contempt, uh, not rightly attributing or not rightly thinking about grace. And so Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, uh, I think it's actually... I. It's down wrong on my notes. I think it's verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so Paul puts that in there. Because he has to tell you to remember that you were outside of Christ. Don't get on your high horse and think you're somebody now. Because remember that you're a Gentile. Remember that you were separated from Christ. Remember where you were before Christ had shown you mercy. Right? That's what the uh, Corinthian Christians had done. That's what several of the New Testament epistles were about. That's what James talks about is people in the church looking down and treating other people poorly because God hadn't shown them the same amount of grace or that they're not as sanctified. And I think it's, it's a good, it's something that I do regularly is in times of devotion or like, you know, devotional times or reading scripture is to think about where Christ has brought you. 
Where, how has he sanctified you? How has he shown you grace? Where have you grown? Where, by God's grace, where has he brought you to? Remember where you were at. You know, looking, uh, I know my own testimony, and looking around, I know at least bits and pieces of, of most people's testimony, and it really gives, uh, kind of puts into flesh in, in 1 Corinthians when, he, when Paul says, that not many of you were noble in the world, not many of you were of high standings, and that's true for everybody here. <laughs> not, not many of you guys were in high standing in the world, not many of you were even very sanctified, not many of you were very godly, uh, you know, and we have a tendency to, once God shows us a little bit of grace, and we understand that, to try to take it into our own hands and sanctify ourselves, and then we think it's all us, and then look down on, down on others. And so, um, Matthew ten eighteen, Jesus himself, even though he's talking about uh, the gospel and and deliverance and um, and not receiving money, but uh, he says, "Freely you have received, freely give. Just as much grace as God has given you, you are to give in return. God gives it to you so that you would give it." And so, uh, we often expect others to get their act together like we did forgetting that we aren't the ones who got our act together. And so we're never going to be a church that doesn't have messed up people. I would never, ever want to be part of a church that doesn't have people who are dealing with addiction, depression, codependency, sexual immorality, and other things. I never want to be part of a church that doesn't have people like that. Because then we're not really being a church. We're not really helping anybody. If we don't need any help, then we don't, then what are we doing? And so, um, you know, just in my own testimony, coming out of uh, codependency, alcoholism, abuse, emotional problems, probably if I ever went to a psychiatrist, they'd probably say I had psychological problems. Uh, I can just bank on that one. But, you know, where God has brought you to, he wants to show you grace to show others grace. And so we are constantly going to be a church that brings people in by the word to preach the gospel who are going to have their lives transformed. And so if your life isn't being transformed, if you, if you read those verses in, in Ephesians and where Paul's talking about remember where you were, and it's all this kind of theoretical yeah, once I was like theoretically an enemy of God, but I've always really kind of been a good person. And then I started, I got a little churching up and here I am now. Then what did you actually, what gospel did you actually hear? What did you actually receive? Was it grace? Was it Christ? I don't think so. Many of us, even in, you know, uh, have come out of addiction, have come out of depression, of kind of radical life changes. But if you don't view yourself as a self-righteous Pharisee before Christ, if you grew up in a, in a godly home where you had godly parents and it was a pretty good life, and if, and if you even converted to Christ at an early age, and if you don't see that you were an enemy of God before Christ in your hypocrisy, in your legalism, in your Pharisee, or whatever it is, then what did you get converted to? I honestly think that, uh, you know, in... In, in my life, God brought me to a much lower point because it, I was much more hard-headed to, to see the lights open. 
But I honestly think it's a little bit worse to be a self-righteous religious Pharisee that, that doesn't see their need for grace because they're, they're that much more deceived. At least when you're an alcoholic or something, you know that that's bad. But when you're just a religious guy, uh, you're often blinded. And so God, doesn't, God isn't looking for people who just need a little churching up. He doesn't want your help. He doesn't want you to bring anything to the table. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't want your righteousness. Isaiah talks about uh, that our righteousness is like filthy menstrual rags before God. That's what it's like. The best you could ever bring to God is just filth. It's just, you can't use it. It's not worth anything. And so what he's looking for is pitiful, humble, contrite, sinners who don't have anything to bring. You can't bring anything to God that's actually going to help him. You can't help him. The more you try, the less it actually helps. Sometimes what God's doing is the more you try and try and try, and you're like, I'm really trying, he's just waiting for you to let it go. Just let it go. And so the more you try to bring anything to God, the, the less and less grace it is. You can't bring even forth the necessary faith that, that requires salvation. God has to give it to you. Romans 11.6 says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We have this thing in our hearts that constantly wants to bring things to God. Like that we can say, God, I'll, I'll really help you. I know you can bring me 90% and I'll do the other 10. But then it's not grace at all. If you bring anything to God, it's no longer grace. And so the only contribution you have to your salvation, the only contribution you have towards your sanctification is the state that needs sanctified and the state that needs salvation. The only thing you bring to the table is the sin needed to be saved from. Ephesians 2.9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is what God is doing in his exhibitions of grace. He wants to, in God's eternal plan, you know, and you can even see this in the book of Acts, not many politicians, not many governors, not many people in high standing in society get, get saved through the gospel. I mean, you might say Cornelius is, is one in a local region, but in God's eternal plan, the way he is saving the world is turning people who have no standing in society, who don't really have anything notable about them, can't bring anything to God, who get converted by grace to go out and be ambassadors of Christ through the entire world and to change the entire world by that. And it's completely flipped upside down of what, how we would think we'd want to change the world. And so we have absolutely nothing to be proud of and nothing to boast of before the Lord. It's only on the conditions of God's grace. And it's grace because we deserve the punishment, right? We deserve it quick and hard. Uh, Saul didn't... God's not forgiving when, he, when we see Saul and he's persecuting and murdering Christians and dragging them off. He's not just saying, okay, well, I'm just going to forget about that. It's not that big of a deal. We're just going to push that to the side. When grace is actually grace because there's a punishment that needs to be handled. And the only place we find justice and mercy is in the cross of Christ. 
as, as, for, as John, the Apostle John says in, in the first chapter <clears throat> of his gospel, that the only place in the universe where grace and truth meet is in the person of Jesus Christ. The only way that God's wrath and his justice and his righteousness was poured out was on the cross. And the only place you'll see mercy in the same spot is on the cross. And so God wants to show us of what to expect in conversions, what to expect when we're enemies of God, and what should we expect when he shows mercy. And so oftentimes we have this very humanistic outlook on evangelism, and it's very easy, even on as we go back out to right state, it was like, we're looking for the people who like, who want to hang out with us, and if we can just actually just get them, they're pretty good people to hang out with us just a little bit on Sunday mornings, that would be great. They could, uh, they can stay the way they are. They're still pretty good people, and if they just come on Sunday mornings, then we got them, right? We often have an outlook on evangelism that's like that. And so if your views and what we uh, tend to shy away from is the really hard cases, so to speak, the people who are belligerently hating God, uh, there is a precedent for and especially through the book of Acts and the Gospels, for people who were pre-evangelized, who already knew the scriptures, already knew the foundations of the gospel, and just had to hear it. Um, it's the majority of the churches that start were, were Jewish people, you know, in, in the book of Acts, were Jews. And so there is a case for going after people who are pre-evangelized, but often we have a very low expectation of God's grace for people who are, are deep in sin. And I think we should be bolder about that. And so if your life hasn't changed, if you can't say your view of morality or your lifestyles or priorities haven't changed, then what were we converted to? If we don't have a, a deep, heartfelt conversion like Saul, who is what had been clearly filled with anger and malice and just wickedness, to be an apostle of grace, then, then what, are we, what are we really being converted to? Uh, it was... In the last couple of months, I had an opportunity to meet, uh, uh, I was in a situation where I was, uh, met a guy I'd never met before, and I, I think he's a deacon of a local church. If he's not, he does a lot of serving. I don't know if he was a deacon or not, but I kind of asked him, like, oh, so how'd you come, come to Christ? And he said, well, he grew up in the church, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be like a, a normal testimony. He grew up in the church, and now he goes to church. And he said, he's like, he grew up in church, but really rejected it and went hard into atheism in his teens, and... His parents were kind of nominal Christians or Catholic or something, and he went to college, and he just went full-blown into atheism, uh, started to live a homosexual lifestyle, and because he never saw any difference between the Christians and the people of the world. The only difference he saw in his experience was uh, that the Christians go to church, and they say they're Christians, but they leave the same debased, immoral lifestyle as, as the atheist. And so... It wasn't until uh, someone on a campus, um, campus outreach challenged him and said that he shouldn't live a sexually immoral lifestyle. He was like, I've never heard anything like this. <laughs> Let me hear some more. What do you mean? And so he actually came out of homosexuality, drug addiction, um, and, and just hearing his testimony. It's like, I would have never you know, thought about this about this guy in, in one least bit. And so that's what we should expect when we see God's grace. Um, we should see these wild conversions. We should see people changed. We should see enemies of God going to, to friends of God. One thing I like and why we read from Psalm 23 is 
when the psalmist, when David says, you make my, you set the table before me in the presence of my enemies. And that's true. Uh, God did that for Christ in the presence of his enemies. But some of those enemies get converted. That's how God works. That's what he did with everyone who's been converted. And so as we come to the table today, um, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we're all to examine ourselves before we take the Lord's Supper. But he doesn't say examine ourselves to see whether we have sin or see whether we have sinned this week. And if we haven't sinned, then we'll take communion. And if we have sinned, we'll, we'll refrain. The scripture views of, of sacrament of, of baptism and the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. We don't mean that, that God is transfigured into uh, these elements, and just because we legalistically take these elements, we receive grace. We always receive grace by faith. We always receive grace in reality in some, in some form. And so some of us have had a habit of removing ourselves from the table, removing ourselves from communion, because we think we have done an especially great sin this week. But what are you saying about God's grace? You're saying that I can't receive God's grace until I get a little church and up. That's not what the table is. We're called, when Paul says, examine yourself before you take the Lord's Supper, it's an examination of whether we hate our sin, whether we've received God's mercy to, to not rebel against him, but to begin to rebel against our sin. Do we forsake our sin and want grace? Do we forsake our sin and want Christ? That's the examination that's to be done. And so, Nobody should remove themselves from the table on the basis of sin unless the elders or church, you know, as a large knows about it and have removed you from the table. Don't remove yourself from God's grace unless, um, unless the, the church at large has removed you or the government of the church has. And so uh, we want to make sure when we come to the table, we're receiving grace. We're receiving by faith the, the mercy that God is pouring out. Not if I get a little church up, God will then give me grace. And so uh, come and let's dine with Christ.